Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today we welcome Dr. Diana Bagnall, a research soil scientist for the Soil Health Institute. Her current work includes integrating research and outreach to secure the global soil resource. Some of her specific research includes developing functions that show the effects of management on soil physical properties, also on-farm soil health assessments, qualitative analysis of farmer interviews, and outreach to farmers in the United States. She and Monty discuss the importance of being able to quantify and assess these practices that are being used to build soil health across the country. Let's get started with this powerful conversation. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by uh, Dr. Diana Bagnell. Welcome. How are you today? I'm fantastic. I'm really excited to be here with you all. Well, it's uh, pretty neat uh, what all she's been up to, but I'm going to let her tell her story. I want to uh, give us a little bit of your background and and really your why. How did you get involved and interested in, in what you're doing here today? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I started out interested in agriculture, um, you know, back as a 4-H kid. I grew up in Texas and, you know, lot, got to learn a lot about plants and animals. And I ended up going to a junior college where I had the chance to work in a little bit of soil science and really fell in love with it. I uh, went on to Texas A&M University and uh, worked there for a little while. And then I got, um, you know, I thought, well, I, this academic thing is all right, but I think I'll go work for a bit. And I was a project manager for several years there at Texas A&M. And that was such a great job for me because I got to really see how the knowledge that scientists work on goes out to corporations and nonprofits and uh, the government and the real world. And I became really passionate about understanding more of that. How do we take our science and really get it to the folks who are going to use it? So I, I went back to school and I got an interdisciplinary PhD. I studied natural resource economics, soil physics, and also a little rural sociology. So I get bored very easily is what I what I tell folks. And then in 2019, when I graduated, I had the opportunity to come work for the Soil Health Institute in this nonprofit space um, where I'm a research scientist now. And I was just so fortunate to get to do all that interdisciplinary piece and really the applied science um, that we do at SHI. So you mean they allow you to study in more than one silo? I didn't think that was allowed by law. <laughs> it can be hard. You really have to work at it. Um, uh, but it's it's great. And I think it's a, something that more and more uh, we see, you know, folks thinking in that, how do we um, how do we work across these boundaries and these barriers to deal with real world problems? So tell us a little more about that as far as, uh, you know, your choice to do that. But then... Um, from your perspective, what you see that those um, those silos that are out there that are just set up by its nature in education, and it's and it's uh, heartening that others are looking at, you know, uh, crossing the silos and such. But talk about that experience for farmers and listeners, what that's like, and and what kind of challenges. I mean, it's good in cer certain spots, but it's it's not good for other reasons. So, talk yeah. your opinion on that. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that sometimes um, 
the challenge for being in an interdisciplinary or a transdisciplinary space is that, um, you know, you have to be kind of good enough at some core uh, competency to be able to market yourself really well and, and convince folks that, you know, you've got this subject matter expertise. But uh, and I think that's really important. And so sometimes it can be more work. Um, and I think that our growers and, and folks know that they know that um, when you're changing, when you're learning something that's maybe a little bit outside of the way that you've done things, maybe even when you're doing something that's outside of the way that everybody maybe in your county has done things or your your state has done things, there's there's challenges there. Um, but I was really impressed years ago reading um, reading some material where this gentleman who had studied in in electrical engineering, he'd studied in aerospace, he studied in a lot of different spaces, and it it just showed how quickly this individual was able to diagnose problems because the understanding of both the electrical and the and the chemical and the physical systems were all kind of in one person's brain. And and as a student, I really took that to heart in interdisciplinary science that. It was my job to have the economic, enough economic knowledge, enough soil science knowledge, enough sociology knowledge kind of live in me to be able to put those things together. Truly being interdisciplinary is not you talking about your stuff and me talking about my stuff and us talking past each other. At least a little bit of it has to live in both of our minds. So we both walk away with a bit of that, that knowledge in us. So you had to know more than just to be dangerous is what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> had to be, yeah. Had to be yeah. functional. But uh, no, I think my biggest challenge is with being interdisciplinary is spelling that and not having autocorrect uh, mess it up for me. You know, well, that. that is what autocorrect is for, uh, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. <laughs> so that that's interesting. And in, um, yeah, I think the, you know, being um, able to to see the the multiple things, especially the sociology component that you got in there, because I don't believe people understand how hard it is to affect change because of social norms, peer pressure, all those dynamics within uh, sociology. So dive into that discipline a little bit for us. Oh, gosh. Well, I think, you know, as a, as a, um, a scientist, I would say a lot of our problems end up being, you know, they're about our choices, uh, ultimately. Um, you know, there's a lot of information out there right now about exactly how healthy I could be and all the ways I could be absolutely the healthiest, but you're really going to come down to the choices that, that I make. And when we talk about our soil health and we talk about, um, you know, that there's a there's a piece there. There's we believe at the Soil Health Institute that that really centers around the adoption decision that our our producers, our, our folks out there really work in the land who understand their systems. It's their choices. Um, and we have an obligation to kind of support that and to make sure that we're taking um, you know our fair share of the benefits that they're providing to us as they're giving us, uh, you know, food and clean water and clean air and, and so many other things. Um, so I, I can see that, you know, and I think that ultimately we have to have solutions that work for real people in real places. So that sociology component, as you said, so critical that all our problems are people problems when we come right down to it. Well, there's never a people problem until there's two people. So <laughs> I, I like what you said there, you know, uh, you know, in my mind, the way I, I summarized it here was just, it's not really a lack of information uh, today. At, at 10 years ago, there kind of was, right? And adopting cover crops and no-till, what those impacts could be. We've got that information. Now it's uh, uh, the decision thing. And what you're saying about the health, you know, I know everything chemistry-wise, uh, componentry-wise, everything I need to do to 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 be, you know, a, a strong 180 pound guy 
but here I am, I'm not, right? So it's not a matter of knowledge, it's a matter of behavior. So it's uh, getting that adoption decision, as you said, uh, to, to, to enact. So then along comes Soil Health Institute, which this is a unique organization, right? So it, it's unique in the fact that it's nonprofit, but it's research and, and how, you know, how, how this all works. Describe your experience with Soil Health Institute and, and, and some of the amazing things that you've uh, got going on there. Sure. Well, there's there's a lot of ground to cover there. Um, yes. You know, I would say so we're a 501c3 nonprofit, as you said, and our mission is to safeguard, enhance the vitality and productivity of soil. And if that sounds like a really big job, it is a really big job. It's, you know, it's a lot of components, but we approach it systematically. Um, we center our work around that adoption decision of producers and ask, you know, what's the information that growers would need to make this decision? And, you know, they tell us they need to understand the business case for um, for soil health. They need to understand locally how what's the right way to measure their soil health and how do they make those measurements meaningful interpreting? And I can tell you right now, oh, you got an aggregate stability of 0.8 and doesn't maybe mean a whole lot. Yeah. You know, yay, have a, have a party. Um <laughs> And I think that, so we we work in that economic space where I think over 150 partial budget economic interviews, we've done corn and soy in the Midwest, we're working on a lot of cotton production now, really understanding what are the benefits that those growers are seeing, if they're seeing reduced costs when they uh, reduce their tillage, that they're seeing ability to, to cycle nutrients better, and so they've got reduced inputs, uh, reduced diesel fuel usage, all those kinds of things, and a lot of different systems. Um, we're thinking about that measurement piece. So we've done a lot of work um, and I've, to, to really uh, have peer-reviewed literature that supports a minimum suite of soil health indicators so that we don't have to go out and measure 57 things to try to understand how healthy our soil can be. But in most situations, we can use just three or four indicators and tell you, you know, that's just about how healthy your soil is. And a lot of our work now is really in a space of trying to contextualize that. Use the example of, hey, how about point eight? Is that good or bad? But if I told you that, you know, the the best grower in your area was at point nine and that maybe a perennial native prairie was at one, then you might have some more context uh, to, to understand where how healthy your soil is and how healthy your soil can be. And so those are some of the activities we have, you know, in this space of informing that adoption decision. We do research, as you mentioned, um, in space where we think, yeah, we need a better measurement technology here. We need a, a model that's more clear. And then we're also really thinking about assessing those impacts, understanding how we can perhaps inform policy, inform people in the supply chain. I think increasingly we see the supply chain asking, um, you know, what's the soil health on which uh, the supplies that we're purchasing are are grown? And so we see a lot of interest there. So both thinking about the adoption decision, thinking about informing it, working on research, and then understanding those impacts that can cycle and pull market demand to provide, you know, more economic incentive for growers uh, to be supported in, in using these practices, like reducing their tillage and using cover crops that are really going to support society and the environment. And defining soil health has just been a real hard thing to do, right, <laughs> at the very beginning. But I like how you said that uh, you, you've come to where, uh, did I hear you right, like four parameters that really yeah. narrow in on, yeah, that catch the lion's share of it. You know, it's not going to, every little nuance that there is, but you can look at some certain things and just know, hey, you're headed in the right direction, or you can have some, in your example of comparing and such. 
Um, what do you think are the things that are most important to to look at to define soil health in those parameters? Yeah, so smoke density or aggregate stability. Excuse me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think so. There's a, there's several pieces there. You know, we have a of a definition that the NRCS has put out for soil health, which is that it's the continued capacity of a soil to function as a vital living ecosystem. Well, that's really helpful in understanding what it is. And we take the approach of looking at principles of soil health. So we know that we are going to want to reduce our physical disturbance. We know that we're going to want to keep our soil covered and increase our biodiversity and things like that. Keep our living roots as much as we can in the year. Maybe even look at some integration of, of livestock if we have the opportunity to do that. And so those principles uh, apply in different combinations in the same way that I might say exercise is a principle and nutrition is a principle. And then the question is, you know, what are the measurements to, to your point that we're going to look at? Um, and we have uh, a lot of information out there on our, our website and our, our recommended measures page where we talk about the indicators we've recommended. And we've done that based on looking at 124 different long-term research sites uh, across the continent, so U.S., uh, Mexico, and Canada. And so each of those sites had individual experiments and trials that included the effects of soil health management. And then we looked across them as well. So with that really huge data set where we went out and were able to collect in, in partnership with a lot of other institutions, we found that when we measure the soil organic carbon concentration, um, the aggregate stability, and we actually now can, that can be done on a smartphone. We don't have to, to send it off to the lab. Looking at aggregate stability, looking at the potential carbon mineralization. Some of your listeners may be familiar with uh, soil respiration as another way to, to say that. And then we're able to use that information, that soil organic carbon, plus knowing the soil uh, sand and clay content that oftentimes we have for maybe our fertility tests. And we can predict the plant available water holding capacity. So that's that fourth indicator. So carbon, aggregate stability, potential carbon mineralization, and the plant available water are the indicators that we think in just about all the cases that we run across, we can see change in one of these in response to adopting those soil health principles um, and then thinking about practices that really work for us locally. Okay, now back up. You lost me at the whole, uh, this is available for your phone uh, measurement. And I'm, whoa, 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 I, I've missed out on something. Dive into that. How does that work? I mean, we, we can do everything on our phone now. Uh, not, That's right. Not just start our car. We can, we can look at our soil. Tell, tell me more <laughs> about that. For sure. So when we think about the different ways to measure soil, and, and I'm a soil physicist by training, so I think a lot about those physical parameters, and our growers know their soil structure, their aggregates, when they improve their soil health, are, are getting stronger and they're getting more resistant to degradation. And so there was work out of the University of Sydney in Australia that was able to use photography to say, if we took these little aggregates and we put them in a petri dish of water, and we see how long it takes them to expand and how much they expand as they they are kind of like they slake out with that water, that we're able to use that and say, well, this is a pretty good measure of how stable those aggregates are. And so there's a phone application um, that the University of Sydney put out, and we're working on a second version um, that we hope is out later this year. Uh, but we are able to use that technology uh, to be able to measure aggregate stability. And we, we do have some more information on how laboratories can use that at our website. So labs that are interested in adopting that have a standard operating procedure that they can go take a look at. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a, it really shows the advancement and the idea that uh, more and more will have soil health assessments that really make sense uh, for individuals out there. 
The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. So yeah, that that's fascinating that that work's being done. I think that's another great role that the Soil Health um, Institute has done is pulling all these information articles together. You know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to look at um, where are all the wheels, right? First off, and and I'm I'm holding back because I really want to get to this the the, the topic on the, on the comment farm farm tool, but I'm, I'm trying to trying to not jump to the best part. Okay, but. Um, well, let's go there anyway. I think this is a great, great tool uh, in, in regards to water home pass. Walk us through there, and uh, I want to dive into that a little bit. Uh, this using research and doing, to me, it appears to be multiple studies put together into a tool that a farmer can then show uh, him or herself by making a certain practice change. I have the ability to influence uh, the total water holding capacity in my farm. So, Walk, walk us through that, and I really appreciated the video that you did, and we'll include that video link uh, in, in the notes, too. Sure, absolutely. So the study I was talking about earlier, where we looked at 124 different research sites, long-term, so 10 or more years, and the professionals were kind of monitoring these, that gave us this huge data set where we measured more than 30 different soil health indicators at each of those 124 sites. And there were many great things that came out of that data set, included, including what we've already talked about with a minimum set of indicators. Another thing that that brought us was the ability to understand really for the first time how when we increase our soil organic carbon, how much more water does our soil hold? Now, I say for the first time, there are equations in the literature and soil science for a long time that have been able to predict what we call plant available water. But there was this kind of mismatch that was going on where the, the research was saying, yeah, more soil organic carbon really doesn't seem to hold more water. But then we had growers, I've interviewed growers, and, and they, they're telling me like, man, I can see that my field is not ponded when my neighbor's field is ponded. I can see that the greenness of my crops is uh, a week later into a dry period than my neighbors. And it's I attribute it to the fact that I'm seeing my carbon levels go up, my soil organic matter being built up. And, and I'm seeing these things in the field, this physical relationship. So that data set was able to, to really validate what our growers were seeing. And it was able to do that for a couple of really important reasons. Um, one of them we've already talked about, which was just that the study already included management at each site. So past studies mostly were just looking at, hey, a soil over here holds this much water. And if you go over there, it holds that much water. Well, that's not really a management change. A management change is, what actually did I do differently on the same soil type to get something to happen differently? So that management effect was really strong in this data set. And the other thing is that we used intact soil cores. We didn't pulverize them and then see, oh, what's the effect of this? And to me, that using those intact um, soil cores really allowed us to see how soil structure was changing because these folks were not killing as much as the controls were tilling. And so that really brought us this predictive equation, which we've published in the peer-reviewed literature that shows that about twice as much water is being held because of changes in soil organic carbon as past research had shown. 
So we have these equations, we publish them so that everybody can go and use them. And one of the places that they've already been used is in the Comet Farm tool that you mentioned. So the Comet Farm tool has been around for a while. It was developed at uh, Colorado State University with support and uh, input from USDA NRCS. And it's a greenhouse gas accounting tool. So it's really helping growers to be able to go in and say, if you made some management changes and you did them for, oh, let's say 10 years on your particular farm with your soil type, what would we end up with in terms of your reduction in greenhouse gas emissions? Another thing they're looking at is, hey, okay, that not only that, but how much more carbon could I store in my soil? Well, that was the perfect opportunity for us to apply these new equations that we had and say, you already know what the carbon is going to be when you change your management practices. Now let's talk about water. And so today in the Comet Farm Tool, you can go and run a simulation. And one of the tabs of your report is going to show you the change in plant available water. Now, that's pretty cool. That's good that you can see, hey, when I make a management change, I'm not just changing carbon. I'm also changing the plant available water. But to be frank, that's kind of like me telling you, okay, you've gotten a little bit bigger cup for water. And that's great. You know, that's meaningful. But our growers know that when they're thinking about plant available water, they're thinking about not just, a, I say not a cup of water, but a cup for water. And what I mean by that is it's going to rain again and it's going to fill up again. Their crop's going to use that water, extra water, and it's going to rain again. And they're, so they're going to be able to really see that benefit multiple times throughout the year. So even though I might say, well, it's only a tenth of an inch or maybe even less than that of plant available water holding capacity, that's not sounding really great. But if I start to say, well, in each rainfall, you might get another tenth of an inch. All of a sudden you can think, well, you know, let me think back 2018, would that a matter? 2019, how about 2020? And so, uh, you know, one of the other things we've talked about is that we're continuing this work now from the same equations to really think about that question that I just had, which is how does weather, local weather, maybe even more variable weather than we used to be seeing, how is that going to be able to inform the value that we get from increasing our soil carbon? It's not just the whole buzz around carbon markets and it's not just the physics of having carbon there. Now we can quantify, hey, in the growing season, maybe you could get another half an inch during, uh, you know, right before tassel, would that be meaningful to you? So we're partnering with Cargill, um, who's supporting this work to really understand water stewardship of regenerative agriculture by hopefully creating decision support tools, maybe even a web app, where we can go in and have people interact with that and learn about how soil health improves plant available water over time. Well, what really blew my mind when I was watching your video is in the example that you used there, it only increased the soil water or plant available soil water holding capacity by a quarter of a tenth. Okay. So 0.0025 of an inch. And everybody would be saying, so what? You know, big deal. Who cares? It, you know, I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of disappointing here. I thought it increased it a whole bunch. But then when you talked about Yes, that increases it every rainfall or every irrigation event. You can hold a quarter of a tenth. Well, when you do that four times, well, you've you've delivered another tenth of an inch. And when you do it, you know, let's say eight times, you've given it two tenths. So, you know, how many irrigation or rainfall events do we get in a growing season? There's quite a few. So that does, even though those those little changes make a lot. And what I loved about that is you took a lot of existing big bodies meta studies together into a practical, um, basically what if projection formula, 
to show the true impacts to a, to a farmer that all of a sudden, if you show a, a person that and they can run it on their own land with their own soil tests, soil types in there, they're like, oh, well, gee, that makes sense. I should look into this, right? That was the goal. And, and I think it's great for that. And uh, uh, thanks to you and the people at Colorado uh, State, I believe you said, and everyone else that worked on that, because that those are real um, data we can use instead of just, oh, gee, by guess, by golly, it looks greener, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's going to be, um, okay, put put the sociology hat back on. Um, you know, I, I was always told, I remember an internship I had uh, in the summer in college, and a sales trainer came into a group of, you know, hardened sales professionals, which means they're old, they've been there, they've done that, they know everything there is to know. And, and she told them that uh, people buy uh, emotionally and then justify their decision rationally. So I think the beautiful part about these type of tools is it provides that rational justification um, for that initial uh, decision they make is, am I anywhere close on this? Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's this reality that, you know, this is a complex decision and it's not just based on one, one little thing. And, um, you know, there's, there's risk to be considered. And so our growers who are, who are making changes um, you know, they may be thinking about the time that they're not spending on that tractor tilling that they're going to spend with their family. They may be thinking about the resilience for future generations. They may be thinking about, um, you know, a lot of different components. And so having a few tools that can help provide that, that justification to your point, um, and also maybe show you when would it be valuable. And I think a lot of our philosophy here is saying, you know, let's put the, let's put the what if scenario in the grower's hands. Um, I don't need to translate, you know, inches of water to dollars for any grower out there. You know, I can say, here's here's how many inches of water. And you can say, let me think about whether or not that's worth it. And today, I think increasingly uh, the growers I speak to are also saying, might that be worth it if I have another year like I had last year? You know, I work a lot in cotton soils and I think of our growers in Texas last year and this year. And some of the landscapes that they were facing in terms of lack of rainfall and excessive temperatures. And when you're when you're looking at those scenarios and saying, you know, maybe my risk profile is is not the same as it used to be. What more can I can I learn? What more can I have to understand um, what tools do I have in my toolbox to influence this situation? And as to your point, that small amount that my, I may be able to increase the available water holding capacity of my soil, but I'm going to see it at every rain. Maybe, maybe that is enough. Maybe that is meaningful for me. You mentioned cotton and cotton's my favorite crop. Um, but I, you know, I've seen amazing things, especially in West Texas, where you have wheat stubble or cover crop stubble, strip till plant cotton. And, you know, we get the wains, rains, we get it drying out and, you know, it's in place where the neighbor did tillage, it's blown out. It's gone, you know, just, just sheared off at the soil level from sandblasting essentially. Uh, it, it's really amazing what those practices can do for the health of the plant. All right. Now, I think I kind of heard, and maybe I'm spoiling the fun here, but you can take these models um, because of the change in weather events that we're getting. So when we do get storms, we get them less frequently, we get them higher intensity. It seems to be in most areas. You can take, if that farmer can absorb and hold a tenth of an inch more per rain event, now you can also probably predict runoff associated with that and 
the ability of water quality that the farmer is exporting from the farm. Is that is that a stretch or is that possible? Yeah. No, I mean, it's certainly possible. I think that one of the things that we have to eventually be able to do is put all these components together together in, in one place. And that's a struggle. You know, a lot of the models that we have today, they were built asking the question, how does my soil affect my crop? In fact, I'd rather ignore soil if I could, but I guess I kind of have to pay attention to it a little you gotta, bit. You got to so, plant it somewhere, right? It's just right. that pesky dirt out there. Yeah. It's just a place to hold a crop. And, you know. Yeah. And, and so a lot of the knowledge that we have today was built from that perspective. How does my soil affect my crop? And, I, and this may be a little bit over the line, but I honestly think we're in the first generation um, of kind of our, our mechanized agricultural societies that are asking, what can my crop? do for my soil. I mean, certainly there have been indigenous cultures that have had that that mindset for a long time. But if we think about, um, you know, just the emphasis on cover crops and the idea that, wait a second, the purpose here is to is to change my soil. There's a lot going on there. And so I would I when I, I say that all to say that I think there's a lot of work to be done on our models to really integrate all of this understanding of the components of when we change our management. How are we improving our soils and how is that going to affect all the things that we were talking about, including, as you just said, there's eventually there a tie to uh, water quality runoff and things like our aggregate stability are going to influence how rough is our surface? Is that going to hold water a little bit longer? So putting all those things together is definitely the goal in the long run. And the thing I love about these measurements you're talking about is these are very concrete measurements that are attainable relatively inexpensively are very repeatable, are very certain, and those kind of things. And yet the industry, or, or not the industry, uh, everybody wants carbon, okay? And, and trying to concretely define where carbon's at in the soil, what form it's in, what pool, is it a carbonate? Is it, is it uh, you know, a humic substance, uh, w stable forms? What What form is it in? There's all this flux and... What time did you take it? Moisture levels, crop rotations. Uh, it's just wild, isn't it? To try to try and predict uh, carbon in the soil where these other measurements are, are pretty that, that indicate the carbon, correct? So what I'm getting at is, do you think rather than trying to chase this very moving target of exact carbon quantification, are, are we better in the carbon markets to be looking at the practices that drive these parameters? And we know those parameters then are associated with the carbon pool. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There's so much there. And, you know, we I got work... a half an hour, so just take it. <laughs> All right. I'll dig in. No pun intended. Um, so I think that, you know, First of all, I'm supportive of any any system that's going to provide uh, financial benefits to our growers to do the practices that we know are good for the growers. They're good for the profitability. They're good for risk reduction. They're good for the environment. So I'm I'm a you know I'll I'll take any uh, approach that I think will work us out there. But I do think we see a lot of folks recognizing just what you're saying that we have these principles. We know that good things come from applying these principles to the best that degree that we can in the system. And what practices make sense to do that? And then how do we measure progress? How do we measure progress towards that goal? And so that's where a lot of our measurement work has come in is being able to try to have a, a minimum suite that we can say, okay, 
how good could you get? And let's measure you against a reasonable benchmark for your own system, for your own work. And our growers know that, you know, you wouldn't compare yield across the country. Why would you compare soil health across the country? It doesn't really make sense. Um, and I think there's a lot of diversity in terms of the payments or practices that are out there today. You know, we have historic investments in climate smart commodities right now from the USDA. And I think you're going to see a lot of different approaches come across in those projects, a lot of diversity of thought in what makes sense to actually incentivize the growers for these practices. Um, so I don't know that right now today that we have to pick. I do think it can be really costly to verify um, by measurement on the ground, exactly how much carbon has changed in your soil. And uh, especially if you're talking about like understanding it over space, a lot of times our measurements may be in a particular spot in a field and it gives you an idea of directionally how, how are you going, but maybe I don't have to measure it exactly for every location in that field because to your point, I'm not reporting exactly the million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent that this field stored, but I am telling you that what you're doing is working and you're moving towards a reasonable reference state uh, for your soil. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, comparing yourself to yourself, not to, not to everybody, but uh, always moving that benchmark up too. I mean, that's, that's another uh, component there. All right. So you mentioned briefly about the, the money that's out there, USDA, and then there's also a lot of companies that are interested in this too. And just recently, Soil Health Institute and Cargill announced a partnership, uh, $3 million partnership or so to equip farmers. Share a little more about the intentions of that and how Soil Health Institute's involved. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think really the piece here that we're really honing in on is for the, uh, the regenerative practices that Cargill growers are already working towards implementing on their farms. How can we really reliably quantify what the benefits look like in terms of that water component, that water stewardship piece? And so that's why we're bringing to bear the, the publications, the equations that we mentioned to provide decision support for growers that takes what we've talked about that's available in comment today, but adds that additional layer of, let's not just look at your farm, but let's also look at, you know, when are we seeing these benefits? Is it going to be during drought years? Maybe that you're going to see that benefit. Is it during moderate years? Maybe it's going to be um, that it's actually during the wet years that you're going to see that benefit. And how often do we think that's going to occur? Um, and is it going to be meaningful for your particular soil? Maybe you have multiple soil types. Maybe you have a clayey soil in one part of your farm and a sandy soil on another part of your farm. And you're interested in understanding, you know, how might these practices capture water differently? So that's where that particular work with Cargill is focused is on a water stewardship quantification um, and developing decision support tools that are free and available uh, to growers everywhere to be able to understand that better. And I think what it does is it provides back to our conversations on that adoption decision, provides a little bit more information about how you're going to see things. You might see things change on your farm uh, when you improve your soil carbon with these regenerative soil health management practices. So why would Cargill want to do this? Yeah, I mean, I think... There's a, I think there's really wide recognition today from so many different groups that if we are going to be around in the long run and we're going to see increasing levels of supply chain risk, that we need to be thoughtful about having robust supply chains. And that starts at the farm. 
And it starts by making sure that our growers are equipped to manage these these difficult uh, weather years that we're having and that they're able to do that with the best information at hand. So, you know, this gets to something that I think now's a fantastic time to be a soil scientist. You know, I think I think there's really understanding at a societal level that soil matters, that our environment, um, you know, how we treat it comes back to us. And so I think that um, Cargill and many others are in this space of realizing that we do have to have uh, risk reduction in place. And for us, for agriculture, risk reduction is really soil health in the long run. So you mean to tell me they want bushels going through their terminals? I think that's a piece of it, yeah. <laughs> that's a piece of it. And also, I mean, there's value add uh, for everyone involved, right? For the grower, farmer, um, and for Cargill in having a higher, uh, maybe a better carbon intensity score or whatever the measurement might be that would add value to product that they're that they're marketing. So, plus they have their own benchmarks they need to meet as a corporation for for their activities, correct? For carbon offsets. Absolutely. I mean, I think that really when we look at uh, these global goals that, that Cargill and many others have as well, I think that it's the same narrative that we've been talking about at the farm scale where we want to know what's reasonable, how can we achieve it, and then let's go ahead and set some goals and you know get some skin in the game to make sure that we're moving towards our, our goals and our, our progress. And so to me, this is a great example of that. And I'm excited because, as you mentioned earlier, there's so much interest in carbon, which is wonderful. I think that's a great thing. But we don't want to get tunnel vision. And to me, being able to tie those changes in practices that change our carbon that then change our water dynamics is refreshingly um, holistic. And I think that, you know, that's the thing about soil health is that it is so holistic. It's such a big picture thing and it changes it from place to place. You know, I had a grower in West Texas telling me that everyone said, you know, hey, hey, you really need to, to grow cover crops. And he said, well, what really works super well for me is to have a high biomass crop in my rotation so that I'm laying down enough um, cover, enough armor that I have that in place for erosion protection, but maybe I don't have to lose the water that I might to a cover crop. And so what I realized in speaking with him is that he wasn't saying I do like soil health or don't like soil health. He was really talking about a water limited system where he had trade-offs between soil health principles. One was producing armor and one was having living roots in the soil. And in his particular situation, he needed to skew it a little more to that soil armor side and a little less to that living root side. And that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, for all of us, resources are limited and how we deploy these different practices is local, um, but it does require a big picture, a holistic view. And I'm excited to see uh, carbon linked to water and being able to inform growers about how that links together and works. But the reality is that grower that you're speaking of in West Texas didn't just keep doing the same thing that he'd always done because he'd always done it correct Absolutely. isn't that the greatest hope is that everyone's trying something and and if you're listening to this you need to be trying something different and, and you don't have to change the whole farm at once but you need to try uh, a couple different approaches to learn how you can be better equipped to to meet these market needs right so it's not only the the needs that you have on your farm but it's needs for the market um you, sh you should always be trying something do you agree with that yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, starting small, um, understanding maybe there's a local person who has some experience. You know, when we think about 
uh, farmer education, grower education. Um, we don't parachute in someone with a PhD in soil science uh, from another part of the country and say, hey, you know, why don't you go tell folks what they should be up to? We always have the foundation of local technical specialists and farmer mentors who understand those systems. And you're exactly right. Those are the folks who are innovating out there, who are trying something new. Maybe you try something uh, on a split trial, try something in that backfield that you you know you know has a problem with something. And I, one of our soil health educators uh, was fond of saying, don't tell me you're going to plant cover crops. Tell me what problem you're going to solve. And I think that's the approach to have. You know, Why am I doing this? What am I needing to change? And so I, I really agree that being being able to experiment, being able to learn what works for you, taking what others have said, um, and and maybe stepping out a little bit to to learn what works for your farm is an approach that I think our most successful growers will tell you has worked for them. And I think neighbors working together too can be a good resource where one tries one practice, one tries another, or you both try the same practice and and share notes and learn from each other uh, because this is. It's not a competitive spirited thing. This is learning what we can to save a resource for family generations to come. So it was interesting. I did did visualize there's probably some of those people you'd want to parachute in and not give them the parachute, you know, just give them stuff <laughs> out the air. No, anyway, I just no comment. You, you get these weird visualizations as, as you're as you're talking. But you did mention uh what problem are you going to solve with the cover crops? Uh, I'm going to turn it to you. What problem are you going to solve? What uh, what do you see in your career? If if there was some problems that you definitely wanted to solve, what do you want those to be? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this project that we've been talking about today, really being able to provide robust visualizations for the, the amount of water that we can uh, store when we increase our soil carbon with soil health management practices is something that as a native Texan, as someone from a water limited environment and having done interviews with a lot of farmers in my graduate work who were telling me, this is what we're seeing on the landscape. And I can't, I don't know why it's happening, but I know it's happening. When I go to soil health, I'm seeing these benefits. Being able to like make, bring that to bear in these next three years on this project is really exciting to me. You know, I think the other thing in the long run that I really, um, many of us at the Soil Health Institute are focused on is providing those reasonable local benchmarks to be able to say, um, hey, this is about how good your soil could be and um, this is how well the folks are doing in, in your area. Uh, why don't you see if you can go out and get that so that we are not you know, comparing apples to oranges, but we're really providing you something locally and a benchmark for your soil health that makes sense. And then we've, we've actually kind of talked about uh, the third thing that to me in the, my, my long-term career I'd love to see is I'd love to be able to capture enough about how these soil health systems work to represent them in models. So many of our models um, really are from a different time or they don't have robust soil health management systems depicted in them because when the models were created, people weren't using those practices. They weren't even necessarily around and well represented enough to get the data. And so um, this project is also a little step towards that, being able to capture a process and say, guess what, guys, this looks totally different. The physics have changed when we're in a soil health management system. Let's make sure we can predict that. And you look at, you mentioned a data set of 124, I believe, sites or so in North America, so including Mexico and Canada and probably Central America, to get all that site data involved. Um, seems like a lot, but when you think about it, hmm, for all the other product-based research we do, the, the three-year trials to prove a product right, um, that's just minuscule. So having the, the robust data set to work on these long-term rotations where there's 
nobody paying the bill because it doesn't sell more of XYZ. That's a real problem, isn't it? It can be. Yeah, I think definitely, uh, especially when we think about soil health management systems, data availability is a big piece of the puzzle. And, you know, one of the ways we are addressing that right now um, is when I talk about these benchmarks and we're out sampling benchmarks, um, we're doing that on growers fields. Because those are the grower, those are the folks who actually have it happening. Um, and we we'd always like to see higher adoption numbers going out there. But I think we're seeing more and more folks who they understand that this is where the future is in these regenerative practices. I agree with you completely. I think a lot of these system-based um, observations need to be made at the farm level. Because first off, you have the reality of of larger equipment, actual farming practices, and such. A good friend of mine says farmers are not good researchers, and researchers are not good farmers. So the two need to stay in their lane and and do what they do, right? But how do you, um, the only problem I see with that is you bring everybody up to the best benchmark of what's today, but how do we make the best better? Which I think there's lots of room for growth and where maybe the best benchmark in the neighborhood is. There's a lot of cases where I, I don't think 2X is out of the realm of, of being able to be achieved um so how do you the problem is then you create a whole bunch of sample points to get to you know today's best how do you do that on farm and encourage that benchmarking studies within the climate context to get them to their next level of of soil health benefits yeah, absolutely. That is a fan. I'm so glad you asked that question because we're really getting into the experimental design of how we think about these benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So we're going to a space and maybe we're interested in representing cotton growing acres in, say, um, the Blackland prairies of Texas. So those are our shrink swell soils in Texas, a lot of cotton production on them. So we want to stay on the right soil type. We want to stay in the right region. We're going to sample those growers who they haven't really adopted anything new. And we're going to sample those who maybe these guys are really pushing the envelope for, for where they are but we're also gonna sample a third system. We're going to look for something that's in a perennial vegetation, something that really maxes out our soil health principles. And you know, some folks will say, well, that's how is that a fair benchmark? I can't keep grow, you know, um, a perennial system on my cotton acres all year round. But it does exactly what you just were speaking about is that it gives you the logical maximum for your soil type, for this rainfall regime, for this environment, and so now we're able to say, yeah, you might not quite get there, but now we have this upper limit for you. And we're not comparing you to somebody in Iowa and what they were up to. We're comparing you to something local and we're saying, here's here's now the room for improvement. And you know what's amazing is that we see growers, even in places where there's not a whole lot of adoption, we'll still find one or two growers are achieving their benchmarks for their soils, for their soil texture, for their region. And so that tells me that you're exactly right. We can do more than what's out there. I don't think we know how uh, exactly the combination of practices that's going to make soils the most healthy. I think there's a lot more to be learned there. But we can get an idea of how much carbon that soil might could store, how strong those aggregates might could be if we look at a soil um, that maybe it's under, and not all, you don't find this in every scenario, but I've, I've sampled beautiful native prairie vegetation in parts of Texas where, man, you know, I was like, this is a soil organic carbon value of four. I didn't even know this existed in this soil type, but it's gorgeous and it's there. There were a lot of chiggers there too, which were less gorgeous, but hey, anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> um, I, I think these are the ways that we can provide those benchmarks that are local 
and still recognize that our growers are probably going to innovate past what they have been today. You heard it here. What you need to do is seed chiggers into your field to attain high organic matter levels. <laughs> I think I love some organic right? matter there too. <laughs> well, um, back to those shrink swell soils, those black shrink swell soils. I mean, boy, there, if you farm those and you start implementing um, no-till and cover crops or, you know, get some winter grains into that, what a difference. I mean, that that right there doesn't require a lot of high-tech instrumentation, does it? I mean, that that is uh, what I like to call a Ray Charles moment, you know, a difference so big, uh, even Ray Charles can see it. So, um, you know, when you go for those two inch wide cracks and those vertisols to, you know, a half inch wide crack, that's a big deal, isn't it? You've probably seen that. Yeah. I mean, those were the soils that I, I really learned soil science on, which, uh, you know, is like save, saving the hardest, starting at the hardest spot, I guess. I was going to say, your professor didn't holes. like you. What, what <laughs> well, Man, what'd you do to him or her? <laughs> I, I, I can't speak about that on, on a podcast. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, that's, that's safe. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll say, you know, I think that that were those systems and those those water limited systems. And I, I'll tell you, I tried infiltration measurements on a soil that had just been, you know, tilled, uh, you know, the heck out of. And truly, I was like, I can't measure infiltration on this because it's so little is seeping into the ground that it's you just, just like had to hit a crack. You you yeah. had to hit one of those cracks. That's how they recharge. That's right. That's right. And then, you know, I'd be on this absolute same soil type across the fence and I'd see someone who they'd been doing no-till and cover crops for 21 years and were so thoughtful about it. And man, you just see that those infiltration rates, those recharge rates go up. And and if to me, you know, being able to observe that is is something that I'm really blessed to have been able to have the opportunity to do and understand these practices. When we go back and we observe those principles as the best we can in a space, um, we really get to see a difference. Well, that neighbor got more rain, don't you know? Of course. Yeah, but uh, or you had better irrigation water. But in in the case of your, I mean, you probably on some of those tests would lose more to evaporation than you would to infiltration. <laughs> you have to be careful on the time you spent doing that, right? Yeah, no doubt in a hot day in Texas. Yeah. All right. So th that is a great foundational thing. What um, What else should we have visited about while we had our time here together today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've covered so much. I think we've really gotten it. Um, one of the questions that um, that came to my mind is, um, you know, a colleague of yours mentioned, you know, what do you want to see change? What do you wish was not, you know, what are you afraid might stay the same? And I think we've, we've hit on it before, but just realizing that our, our supply chains, our environments are in, you know, they're in this rapid change. And I think, it's it's about, you know, what do I not want to stay the same? Well, I don't want to keep doing the same practices and I don't want to, to take the same research approaches and that we always have. It's the if nothing changes, nothing changes uh, saying. And so we're in an opportunity where I think we have unparalleled investment from the USDA. We have unparalleled interest from society, from supply chains. Um, from corporations, all saying we recognize that we need to be able to measure progress towards real goals that provide society and the environment the stability that they're going to need. Um, and so I, I hope we don't waste it. I hope that we find a way to work together, that we find a way to share the benefits and not saddle any one group of people um, with all the work to get this done, and that we find a way to be collaborative, as you've already spoken about, and make sure that um, we're able to, to share what we learn and uh, and make a better a better place for everybody to live. You make a great point with all those changes that are going on with society and business and government, all these things coming our way. 
I think as farmers, we need to ask ourselves the rate of change that we see around us, you know, whether it's in technology, phones, cars, everything there, whether it's in, you know, all the regulation side and uh, opportunity side, really, with all these additional uh, subsidies, carbon credits, those kind of things. I mean, it's just constant barrage of change. How, and that is accelerating. Are we doing the same in our practices? You know, how rapid are we changing and adopting our farming practices in comparison to the rest of the world around us? And I would contend that we are nowhere close to the rate of change. Now, I don't think you should change just for the sake of change, but you you have to realize that oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't way it was 40 years ago. We we have to be adopting and, and for getting better all the time at a faster rate. And um, I hope with what you're doing and the entire team at Soil Health Institute is going to really help uh, farmers get the information and knowledge they need, plus the benchmarking capabilities, which I love, that will validate the changes that they're making and can adopt and make changes at a faster pace. Uh, don't you think that's um, really what needs to happen? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing about, you know, taking a, a quantitative thoughtful approach to it is then, you know, we can show that that good is being done there. And that only, and you kind of get credit for it. You know, you say, hey, this is how I'm how I'm doing on my farm and what I'm doing to move forward and to approach that benchmark. And we know that uh, from our economic analyses that growers who do that are more profitable. Those folks trying new things are the ones who are seeing those those really high benefits in terms of savings as well as in terms of increased income. And so I firmly believe that those who, you know, really do get behind this and learn what works for them, maybe take it slow, but who uh, who arrive at the changes they need to make on their uh, their properties, they're going to be the folks um, who are there in 10 years telling us how they did it. Then if you're more profitable, you got those tax problems and accountants and, oh, I'm not sure. That well, I can't say I know anything about that. That's a, <laughs> something I'm fortunate to not have to worry about as a scientist. <laughs> well, it could be another discipline for you. <laughs> but no, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your thoughts and, and the work that you're doing and the entire team's doing of bringing everything together in a, in a thoughtful manner. And um, it's just, it's great to, great to see that, Diana. Well, thanks for the time. I sure enjoyed it. Well, I wish you the best in your consent, uh, continued pursuit of, of seeing how all those things work together. And I, I'm guessing, I can just tell by the, by the fire and the passion here, that uh, we'll be visiting again in the future and get an update on, on how things are going. So I look forward to visiting with you again in a few years. Me too. All right. Take care, Diana. Mm -hmm. We are truly grateful that you continue to tune in. It's guests like Diana with their unwavering commitment and innovative approach to soil health assessment that are paving the way for more of these regenerative practices. And if you're curious to learn more about our efforts in equipping growers to lead the charge in implementing soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.